0: Welcome to PwC's IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS. I am your host, Laura Kennedy, and today for our IFRS Interpretations Committee update, we have a special focus on a particularly exciting topic on the agenda, net zero commitments. So we'll be talking about the committee's discussion, but we'll also go on to talk more broadly about accounting considerations around net zero commitments and other climate related matters. For this episode, I have the pleasure of being joined by Carsten Gonsorge, PwC partner and member of the IFRS Interpretations Committee, and Scott Bandora, PwC partner and leader of our global IFRS accounting ESG working group. So let's hear what they have to say. Hi, Carsten. Hi, Scott. Welcome back to IFRS Talks.
1: Hello.
2: Hi, happy to be here.
0: So net zero commitments. To start us off, I guess the place to start, Karsten, is can you tell us a bit of the background around the submission that the Interpretation Committee received in November?
1: Sure. Um, now, let me start by highlighting that climate change and climate related commitments obviously are, are really important topics, not, not just from an accounting perspective, but also more broadly in terms of the impact of climate change on society at large also this is quite a sensitive issue and there are many stakeholder groups out there interested in this topic so i expect that we might have a bit of a broader audience listening into this podcast and i think we should be aware that it's not just accountants but also other stakeholders are interested in this topic as well so in this respect i think it's important to remind our listeners of the role of the IFRS interpretations committee which is to interpret what IFRS accounting standards currently require. And in some cases to provide input to the ISB, which might include recommending to the board possible amendments to the current requirements in IFRS accounting standards. And, and of course there are IFRS sustainability standards issued by the IWSB, which deal with sustainability related disclosures as well. And so there might be broader considerations in sustainability reports on, on these topics as well. So. The submission focuses on climate-related commitments. However, just to give our listeners a bit more background, there are actually a number of issues that have been discussed by the IFRIC in relation to climate at the the recent November meeting. There were three topics on the agenda that relate to various aspects of climate change. The first agenda item relates to a submission around how the provision standard IS-37 applies to climate-related commitments. I will go into into more detail on this in a minute. The second agenda item was asking committee members to provide input to the board on how climate related uncertainties are reflected in the financial statements and whether there's any need for amending or clarifying IFRS standards in terms of how such long term uncertainties are reflected in the IS36 impairment test today. And the third agenda item related to climate was asking committee members to provide input to the ISB on the board's project on power purchase agreements and possible causes of action for standard setting in that regard. But let's focus on your question, which was around the first item on the accounting for net zero commitments. So the submission discusses net zero transition commitments, that is statements in which an entity indicates that it has accepted a responsibility to reduce its carbon emissions. So for example, to be net zero by a specified future date, say 23rd. So more specifically, the submission asked the committee to clarify whether an entity's commitment to reduce or offset its greenhouse gas emissions creates a, a constructive obligation for the entity, whether a constructive obligation created by such a commitment meets the criterion I37 for recognizing a provision, and if a provision is recognized, whether the expenditure required to settle um, it is recognized as an expense or as an asset when the provision is recognized. Now, in the interest of time, I will focus on the key question here, which is the timing when a provision would be recognized. For ease of discussion, the committee considered the matter by reference to a specific tech pattern. So for illustration, let's assume an entity publicly states uh, in 2023 its commitments to reduce its current greenhouse gas emissions by at least 60% by a certain date, say 2030, and to offset its remaining emissions in 2030 and thereafter by buying carbon credits and retiring them from the carbon market.
0: Thanks, Carsten. That sounds like a very relevant fact pattern for many companies potentially at the moment. So what was it you discussed at the committee on that? Was there anything... Particularly judgmental in that analysis or contentious?
1: Yeah, so, so let me start by reminding our listeners about the requirements in I 37 for recognizing a provision. So there are three conditions in I 37, all of which must be met in order to recognize a provision. So, first, the entity has a present obligation as a result of a past event. Second, it's probable that an outflow of economic resources will be required to settle that obligation. And third, a reliable estimate can be made of the amount of the obligation. So, key to the analysis here is really primarily the first condition. So, let's focus on that first condition that is, whether there's a present obligation as a result of a past event. Now, a present obligation does not have to be a legal obligation, it could also be a, a, a constructive obligation. So, in this fact pattern, A constructive obligation would be owed to all people adversely affected by the emissions, so would extend to the public at large. Now, whether an entity's public statement creates a constructive obligation will depend on the facts of the statement and the circumstances surrounding it. So for example, I think the language used in the statement, the specificity and status of plans supporting the statements, the timing of actions and evidence of progress might be relevant considerations. For those who are interested in more details, I recommend to have a look at the staff paper, which contains some more discussions around factors that might be considered in making that analysis. However, it is important to keep in mind that even if there is an obligation, this does not mean that a provision is recognized. Rather, it must be a present obligation that has occurred as a result of a past event. The standard is also clear that no provision is recognized for costs that need to be incurred to operate in the future, as it's only those obligations arising from past events that exist independently of the entity's future actions that are recognized as provisions. So for the fact pattern considered by the committee, this means that even if there is a constructive obligation, At the time an entity publicly announces its commitment, that obligation is not a present obligation as a result of a past event. And therefore, the entity does not recognize the provision at the time it makes such a public statement. Instead, it's only when the entity has emitted the greenhouse gases it has committed to offset that it will have a present obligation to retire carbon credits. So in the example I mentioned earlier, the entity will have a present obligation to retire carbon credits only if and when it emits greenhouse greenhouse gases in 2030 and later years. So I acknowledge this may not be intuitive for all stakeholders, but I think it's important to keep in mind the overall idea in the provision standard IS-37 that costs that are incurred to operate in the future should not be recognized today. Instead, they should be recognized as expenses in those future periods to which they relate.
0: Thanks, Karsten, that's really helpful. So it sounds like it's not necessarily a a clear cut answer for all pieces of the analysis, but it sounds like there's some really good education there in terms of the process to think through when you're in the context of IS37. Yeah. So bearing that in mind, we are in December, 2023 now, My understanding is that the next step for the interpretation committee would be to publish that analysis as a tentative agenda decision. So that would be available for public consultation over the coming months. So I guess that would mean that any agenda decision would be finalized somewhere around the middle of next year. What would you say, if anything, it is that companies should be having as a takeaway now if they're preparing for their 2023 year ends? And maybe, Scott, I'd pass this one over to you.
2: Well, I'd recommend reading an existing IFRIC agenda decision on negative low vehicle emissions credits that has many of the same principles that Carson was mentioning. And in fact, PwC used that to develop its current guidance on the accounting for net zero commitments. So, you know, reading that and some of the, the staff discussions on uh that that program, which I believe was a, a, a Chinese program where essentially uh, credits were being delivered for these uh, vehicle manufacturers, I think would be would be really helpful. And I would say our current guidance at PWC is fairly aligned with where the IFRIC is headed because I think many of the principles that the IFRIC is discussing you could interpret from those existing IFRIC agenda decisions. I'd say as well, even if you're not recognizing a provision for uh, net zero commitments, there are other consequences to net zero commitments that might have to be thought about and those include uh, for example, the possible effect of replacing PPE earlier than previously expected which could lead to impairment considerations, um, you know potentially accelerating decommissioning provisions on certain assets uh, so useful lives of assets those are all things that that could be sort of indirect impacts of, of making a net zero commitment which, even without a provision, would need to be considered with respect to accounting under other standards. There could be also, obviously, changes in forecast cash flows as a result of a net zero commitment that would lead to increased costs, for example. Um, Again, that might factor into an impairment analysis. And fair values could be impacted if uh, market participants would also assume that a purchaser of a particular asset uh, would make a similar uh, net zero commitment. So there's a broad range of uh, potential impacts beyond just the provision itself. Um, I would also say the the European Securities and Markets Authority, uh, or ESMA, recently released a, a publication, which is very helpful, I think. And it has a, a bit of a funny name. It's called The Heat Is On, Disclosures of Climate-Related Matters in Financial Statements. And this was part of their uh, strategic priority to promote high-quality sustainability disclosures in financial reporting. And in that report, they cover things such as significant judgments, major sources of estimation, uncertainty in accounting policies, impairment of non-financial assets, useful lives of tangible and intangible assets, provisions, and other accounting topics. They provide some examples of how companies have disclosed Uh, matters relating to this. So it's not a it's not a disclosure checklist or anything like that, but it provides some useful guidance on practical ways that companies have disclosed certain impacts of of climate and other risks in, in financial statements.
0: Thanks, Scott. That ESMA report actually is probably the perfect segue then into the next thing I was going to ask you about. So thinking slightly wider about net zero, thinking about climate related matters in financial statements more widely. Are there any other areas in financial reporting you would suggest people start thinking about now?
2: Yeah, well, I think a really hot topic is the interconnectivity between financial reporting and other disclosures that companies are making. So we've seen a rise in sort of regulators looking at things like, you know, a company has disclosed this in their sustainability report. How is that consistent with what's disclosed in, in financial statements? So really thinking about uh all of the corporate disclosures that are being made, and whether they're consistent where consistency is required uh, between financial reporting, for example, and, and sustainability information. So, for example, a corporate sustainability report might disclose that a company's plan is to close a plant early. You know, is that consistent then with the uh, the useful life? Uh, that the plant, you know, uh, has in the financial statements, for example. So there are a number of those, you know, interconnectivity uh, considerations to, to think about. And, you know, we recommend that companies really do look at their uh, sustainability information that's being disclosed uh, and compare it to financial information. Other really hot topics at the moment include power purchase agreements. This is another uh project that the IFRIC was asked about in, in regards to renewable energy purchase agreements and the own use criteria that currently apply under IFRS 9. So renewable energy agreements have some particular considerations because, uh, you know, generally they, they have a variable notional amount or a variable amount of power to be delivered based on, you know, how the sun is shining or Uh, How strong the wind is blowing, there might be variable amounts of of energy delivered. So that gives rise to some um, particular, particularly complex issues when it comes to assessing uh, the own use criteria. Um, There are also what's called virtual power purchase agreements, where instead of taking physical delivery of electricity, uh, a contract for differences or an embedded derivative is entered into as part of a a broader contract, typically to acquire renewable energy certificates. And that also has some complexities associated with the accounting, um, you know, the separation and valuation of the embedded derivative in those agreements, etc., so the ISB is uh, thinking of undertaking a, a standard setting project to uh, deal with some of these considerations, both in the context of physical power purchase agreements, where they're looking at potentially narrow narrow standard setting in relation to the own use criteria, as well as thinking about uh, broader hedging considerations um, and how hedging might be applied to such arrangements. There was another uh, IFRIC agenda decision on load following swaps, which makes it more complex in terms of how uh, to deal with hedge accounting for arrangements where there's variable notional amounts. So that might be something the IASB considers in terms of of standard setting. There's a staff paper uh, out at the moment for the December IASB meeting where they do recommend exploring further the own use criteria and the hedging uh, criteria in IFRS 9 to see if there are uh, any potential standard setting solutions to some of the volatility potentially that companies are experiencing with respect to these arrangements. Uh, Carbon offsets and emissions trading, I would say, are other other things. So uh, often in these renewable energy agreements, there are renewable energy certificates that are delivered, but there's broader, uh, obviously, plans where Companies may have uh, cap and trade schemes that they're involved in and and other emissions trading schemes. So the accounting for that can be complex. There's no particular standard uh, that applies currently to those. So entities need to develop their accounting policies. Um, And we have some guidance on that in the publications, which I'll I'll mention later. Green financing or loans with uh, ESG-linked incentives are also becoming more common where The interest rate may vary uh, due to meeting certain targets like emissions targets, for example. So the interest rate varies upwards or downwards, depending on if you meet those targets. Those have uh, particular considerations, both from a a borrower and a lender's perspective um, in terms of from the lenders perspective how to apply the solely payments of principal and interest criteria in IFRS 9 and from the the borrower's perspective as well how to deal with the uh, amortized cost of such instruments expected credit losses always a hot topic as well in terms of how to incorporate climate into uh, expected credit losses and you know does it affect the risk ratings or the probabilities of defaults of of various uh, borrowers Um, another Topic that's coming up more often is segmentation. So, segment reporting and whether uh, chief operating decision makers are reviewing how they look at the business. Some some companies are moving more towards segmentation based on you know renewable activities versus non renewable activities. So, you know, it doesn't mean that necessarily segments have changed, but it's just something to always take a look at in terms of have the has the sort of basis of reporting to the chief operating decision maker changed. Other things that are coming up include uh, investment tax credits because governments are uh, frequently providing more incentives to invest in renewable or green initiatives. So some of those might be in the form of investment tax credits or just tax credits. um, And some might be in the form of government grants as, as well. So I would say, you know, companies that may not have previously received such assistance may now be receiving more government, uh, government assistance or government grants. And it just, you know, is worth refreshing the accounting uh, policies that are being applied to those and making sure that they're, they're fully captured. One other topic that's coming up is the, uh, IFRS sustainability standards that, that Karsten mentioned earlier. So the way that accounting standards are described now that, um, There are separate sustainability standards. uh, Would be that the IFRS uh, accounting standards that we all uh, know and love, including you know IFRS standards, would be referred to uh, in the uh, in the accounting standards as IFRS accounting standards. And then there would be IFRS sustainability standards. So companies may think about how they describe the basis of presentation or basis of preparation, I should say, in their financial statements. And some companies may change to uh, discuss IFRS accounting standards uh, as being the basis of preparation.
0: Thanks, Scott. Wow, so it sounds like this is really pervasive touching on so many aspects of the accounting, even getting used to those different names for the IFRS accounting standards. Yes. Uh, So, Scott, you mentioned that there's a project on the ISB's agenda for the power purchase agreements. I was also wondering about the the IFRIC's agenda. Carsten, would you expect that we'd start to see more climate related matter questions coming in the future in the context of the financial reporting, as you mentioned earlier?
1: Yes, I I actually think that's quite likely. as I mentioned earlier, climate change and climate related commitments are really important topics, not just from an accounting perspective. They f- affect society at large, and these are cl- clearly topics of increased focus and attention. And, and there are certainly also quite a few accounting implications related to climate. So I do expect to see more questions coming to the committee in this regard. Also, as I mentioned, The board is looking at this area in multiple respects. So this issue is not just about the recent submission when to recognize a provision for climate related commitments. Uh, There are also many other accounting considerations as well. So as Scott already mentioned, there's the issue of accounting for power purchase agreements and in particular long term supply contracts for renewable energy. There also could be implications on the IS-36 impairment test. There could be a need to reconsider depreciation periods and residual values for pp and And there could be implications with respect to decommissioning or environmental liabilities. So similarly, if the changes needed to reduce an entity's emissions will increase the cost of an entity in relation to its goods or services, this may result in the need for provision for onerous contracts. Uh, Entities might also need to reflect changes in assumptions about those costs when testing assets or CGU's for impairment. And finally, let's not forget disclosure requirements, not just those in IS-36 and IS-37, but also, for example, the requirements in IS-1 to disclose information about assumptions made about the future and other major sources of estimation uncertainty. So lots of interesting topics and considerations to keep in mind. And I certainly do expect to see more discussions on these matters at future committee meetings.
0: And then maybe before we move on to our next topic, then just to close out on climate related matters. Scott, you touched briefly earlier, you mentioned guidance. I know that climate related matters has been an area of growing guidance for us over the past couple of years. And I suspect that will be no different in 2024 as well. Uh, for now, what are the sort of key areas of guidance you would send people to for more information? Yeah,
2: so I, I think I already mentioned the ESMA the report, which is really helpful, I think, in terms of looking at disclosures. PwC also has illustrative uh, financial statements that we uh, put out. In, and so the 2023 version has an appendix uh, that talks more about some of the disclosure considerations relating to uh, climate and other ESG risks and how that might impact the financial statements. In terms of the accounting itself, we have a, a, an in-depth on the impact of ESG matters in IFRS financial statements, which is quite uh, extensive in terms of covering different standards and how, that, uh, how climate or other ESG risks may affect uh, accounting policies or uh, other uh, accounting for transactions relating to, um, to, to those risks. There's also a voluntary carbon market in depth, which talks more about uh, carbon, voluntary carbon markets, uh, which companies are frequently getting more into in terms of trying to generate credits uh, for renewable activities that they undertake. And also uh, companies purchasing such credits where they intend to use those to meet some of their uh, climate commitments. We also have an in-depth on PPAs, which I mentioned uh, is quite compl- complicated in terms of the accounting. So it covers physical power purchase agreements for renewable energy and also these virtual power purchase agreements. So there's definitely a lot of information out there. Uh, apart from uh, the PwC guidance uh, and ESMA guidance we discussed, there's also guidance that the ISB has issued uh, educational materials on uh climate related matters and how those might impact uh, financial statements. And, uh, you know, so there is definitely a wide variety of information out there.
0: Thanks, Scott. And we'll include some links to those in the notes to the podcast as well. Okay, so then changing lanes um, for the last part of the podcast. Carsten, there was a different topic, also an interesting topic on the IFRIX agenda, which was about IFRS 8 operating segments. Can you share with us a bit about what the question was and why maybe it's one to pay attention to? Sure.
1: Um, so, as you said, it was also quite an interesting topic for discussion. Let me maybe start by reminding our listeners about the requirements in uh, paragraph 23 of IFRS 8. So, that paragraph, which the submission was about, requires an entity to, re- to report a measure of profit or loss as well as a measure of total assets and liabilities for each reportable segment if such amounts are regularly provided to the Chief, chief Operating Decision Maker or C- CODM. It then goes on to say that certain other line items also need to be disclosed by segment if the specified amounts are included in the measure of segment profit or loss that is reviewed or otherwise regularly provided to the CODM, even if not included in that measure of segment profit or loss. So there were three questions raised by the submitter in that regard, and and we don't have time to cover all of them in this podcast, but let me maybe highlight one aspect that I think is particularly important and which could, at least potentially, be quite a big issue for entities if this is finalized as suggested by the staff. So one of the items required to be disclosed by segment in accordance with paragraph 23 of IFRS 8 are material items of income and expense required to be disclosed in accordance with paragraph 97 of IS 1. So there is a cross-reference cross in IFRS 8 to IS, IS 1. Now, that paragraph in IS-1 states that when items of income or expense are material, an entity shall disclose their nature and amount separately. The subsequent paragraph in IS-1 then gives some examples of items that would be included in that disclosure requirement, such as, for example, costs of restructuring, write downs of inventories, discontinued operations and litigation settlements. However, these are just examples. So there's a question around what else would need to be disclosed by segment in accordance with these requirements. Now, there's been quite a bit of debate around what this means for practice, and in particular, whether these requirements should be read narrowly. That is, I intended to cover items that are you know, particularly relevant, perhaps with a focus on qualitative factors or more one-off kind of items, or whether these should be read more broadly. So. A very broad reading of this would be that any item that is is somehow considered material in the financial statements should be disclosed by segment, and some may read this as essentially requiring a complete P and L statement by segment for many entities, and perhaps even more detailed information by segment if further disaggregation is provided in the notes. Now this was quite a controversial debate at the committee, and at the end, the committee voted with a very close vote to issue a tentative agenda decision that I think essentially just repeats some of the basic requirements from IS-1 and IFRS-8. So at least personally, I struggle a bit to fully comprehend what those words mean for practice. And I do wonder whether those words actually provide sufficient clarity, how narrow or how broad the requirements that I just mentioned should be read. And around what actions entities might need to take as a result, So my simple answer to this, in terms of what this means, what this means, is that I think it's not clear at this point. I, I think the words leave quite a bit of room for judgment and interpretation, and I worry that you know some may read those words rather narrow, whilst others may read those words rather broad and consider that much more disaggregation of information in segment reporting might be required compared to current practice. Just listening to the discussion at the committee, my sense was that committee members seem to have various views on how to interpret these words and how they would be applied in practice. So my concern is that the tentative agenda decision, if finalized, may create quite a bit of uncertainty around how to actually apply those words in practice. So my personal view is that the TED should either be clarified in that regard, or the matter should be referred to the board for clarification. Um, And finally, I just want to highlight that the broad reading might potentially require entities to to collect quite a bit of information that may not be readily available. So depending on the final wording, this could, could at least potentially result in substantial operational challenges and the need for substantial changes to processes and systems in order to collect more detailed information for each segment. So, because of this, I would really encourage our listeners have a read of the tentative agenda decision and the related staff paper. Listen into the committee discussion on this matter and write a comment letter to the committee to let you know your views on this matter.
0: Thanks, Carsten. Sounds like it'll be a really interesting one to see the feedback uh, that the committee gets on that tentative agenda decision based on existing practices. Okay, then. So I guess with that cliffhanger, we'll bring the podcast to a close. So thank you very much, Carsten. Thank you so much, Scott. And thank you to our listeners. To never miss an episode, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you again in the new year. Until then, happy accounting. This podcast has been brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers, LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitution for consultation with professional advisors.